0: Hi, Wool Academy podcast listeners. Welcome to yet another episode. And this is episode 122. My guest on the show today is Cody Nicholson Stratton from the Foggy Bottoms Boys in California. And I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Cody. And he has so much to share. I was able to ask him so many detailed questions that were on my mind. And I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I did. Talk to you again at the end. Bye for now. So welcome, Cody. It's so nice to have you on the show. I've been actually following you and your husband for a very long time on Instagram. And I've always wanted to interview you. And I'm really excited that we finally are meeting here on the Wool Academy podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I love the podcast. So it's entertaining yeah, it for many cool. hours. <laughs>
0: While you're strolling on your farm and working hard.
1: Yes, and melting
0: cows. (laughs) 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 Well, yeah, maybe give us just a little bit of an introduction to yourself and also to your farm, where you're based, what you actually do on your farm, so that we get a little bit of an introduction. Okay.
1: Um, So as you said, my name is Cody Nicholson Stratton. I'm a sixth generation farmer in California on the north coast of the state in the U.S. um, and my husband and I farm along with my parents and my grandparents on this family operation. Uh, We're traditionally a dairy farm. Uh, My grandmother's family immigrated in the 1860s and settled here and we've been dairy farmers ever since then. Uh, I started raising sheep as a youth when I was in the 4-H program uh, and then my husband grew up on a sheep operation in Oregon raising suffix, so all meat sheep. And when we moved back, we sort of started shifting our farms operation from 100% dairy uh, into a diversified livestock operation. And that led into fiber and wool sheep.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna talk of course A lot about uh, the sheep as well and I'm also a little bit I mean you already started telling a little bit the history of your farm and I understood that actually yeah you're like three working generations and you also have a son so the fourth generation is already on the farm Um, so yeah how is that working out so many uh, people working on the farm and
1: Let's it's great. Him. We need we need all that help. Many hands make slight work of it all, um, especially being diversified. The one thing that we found is that as our farm has moved further and further into a diversified livestock operation, each person has really found their niche. Um, and so my dad loves beef cattle and beef cattle production. He's super passionate about that. And so he handles all of our beef cattle operations. Um, My husband and I started Foggy Bottoms Boys, which is our, it started out as our social media handle, and that's really developed into the marketing branch of our farm. Um, That's how we sell most of our products, aside from the dairy, uh, whether it's grass-fed meats or our fiber. Then I have always liked sheep. um, And then once I got into wool and really discovered just this amazing world of fiber, I went way down the rabbit hole. And before I knew it, we had a lot of sheep and I'm mostly the sheep person now. Uh, And then we all kind of operate within the dairy itself. And my husband has always loved chickens. And so our pastured laying hens and broilers are really his thing. So he's the chicken guy on the farm. (laughs) And then grandpa is just a wealth of knowledge to have around because He knows where every water line is that runs through the property and how things operate and has a much better handle on just the historical knowledge of our various farms than we do so he's he's here to keep us all in keep us all in line and keep everything going
0: (laughs) and you said you're in the north of california so what kind of a climate do you have and maybe that also wet. is my next question of why is your farm called Foggy Bottom Boys? <laughs> yes. So,
1: uh, we're, we're wet. We're very wet. Um, so this area gets quite a bit of precipitation. We're in the Redwood Forest. So we're actually technically considered to be a rainforest. Um, and we live within a valley that's right along the coastal range between the mountains and the ocean. Um, so we can get 60 plus inches of precipitation a year. Uh, which means that we require very little irrigation, but it's also very soggy. And part of the redwoods being able to grow here is that there's a lot of fog. And that is uh, why we have our name, is that it is very foggy. If it's not raining, it's just foggy. And uh, <laughs> we, the name actually came, our herd of cows is known as Foggy Bottoms Jerseys. And when my husband and I moved back seven or eight years ago, uh, the other dairymen started referring to us as the Foggy Bottoms Boys because it was the Foggy Bottoms jerseys. And so they just mm-hmm. started calling us the Foggy Bottoms Boys. And we sort of ran with it and it just grew out of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a nice story. And um, yeah, because usually when people think of California, they, right now they're thinking about wildfires and more of a very yeah. sunny, dry... Too dry climate, not, but that's not you.
1: That's not us. Not us at all. We are <laughs> the very, the very wet part of the state. We're actually pretty remote. Um, we're in the far north, and so we're fairly isolated. There's really nothing within a two-hour drive of us.
0: Okay. So, so yeah. We, yeah, I guess that part you people may, might not even know that much. Um,
1: no, no. Most people assume the state ends at San Francisco. So. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah even if you live in California
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did hear that you mentioned a few times that you were smelling the smoke from the fires that are going or were going on yeah. in California so um, yeah tell me a little bit what that was like knowing that uh, parts of the country was burning
1: it's it's devastating we have families that were in areas that were evacuated um, and you see the destruction that happened there Uh, it's just we don't have fires in the hills around us there can be fires um, but where we're at we don't get them we definitely had a lot of smoke for weeks on end um, and we had to deal with some respiratory struggles within the animals just because that much smoke inhalation and ash there were days it looked like it was raining and it was just ash coming down Mm -hmm. And uh, there was one day that was incredibly apocalyptic. We got up in the morning and started milking. And about 7 o'clock, it looked like the sun had never come up. And it just was this, like, dark red sky all day long. The chickens never came out of their coops. And it was just uh, sort of like twilight all day. So Um, it was a a new experience for all of us.
0: Yeah, But, but scary, I guess.
1: Yeah, and hopefully we'll... Things will change in how we manage landscapes and how we utilize cows and sheep and we'll be able to sort of shift away from some of these massive uncontrolled fires.
0: Yeah and yeah I think we're gonna talk about that for sure but now that you also mentioned that you started early in the morning milking your cows so what is a typical day for you?
1: Oh (laughs) so that could change uh depending on the season but normally it starts at three in the morning that's Mm -hmm. when our first shift of milking begins and so that'll go until about seven and then we move into feeding calves, feeding cows, Um, we start going out to the sheep flocks and doing any rotations that they need. Uh, We're beginning to lamb, actually no one's lambed yet, they're holding out and making me stress but they'll uh, (laughs) start lambing soon so then we'll be moving ewes into lambing jugs in the barn, we'll be spending more time in the lambing barns and Then we do a lot of rotational grazing. So there's moving portable fences. Uh, In the summer, we'd have some irrigation as well as hay. So you've been shifting to that or into a building fence. And then by three in the afternoon, milking starts all over again. And so you milk for about three hours in the afternoon. And then we'll move into feeding calves, feeding cows, and hopefully make it into the house for dinner around 630 and 7 and then work on of the paperwork that we have to do so
0: and the social media
1: (laughs) and the social media the social media tends to be spread out throughout the whole day we try to just pepper it in our our day and show kind of what's happening as we go about our day and and thomas and i sit down at night and try to respond to everybody
0: yeah that's impressive but then when do you sleep or do you take shifts with your family Uh, members (laughs) um
1: so everyone Usually, there's like a 30-minute midday nap, <laughs> ideally. Okay, that sounds um, healthy. And then, yeah, it's very nice. And then, you know, usually from about 9 to 3 in the morning, so we get about six hours of sleep at night.
0: That's a so. short night, though.
1: It is a short night, but yeah. you, you sort of get used to it.
0: Okay. <laughs> but it's, it definitely is more than a full-time job taking care of so many animals.
1: It, it is. It adds quite a bit, and the cows are very demanding
0: <laughs> yeah, and i already congratulated you before we started our uh, talk but you you also just started to get new calves um being born yes. on your farm. So you're we, waiting yeah. for the lambs but the cows are arriving
1: the cows are arriving they are on schedule <laughs> the, sheep are, <laughs> the sheep are behind and waiting
0: okay well maybe that's good then you don't have to be everywhere at once
1: it's actually a little bit of a relief. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And then, yeah, you also have a lovely website, and I went through it a lot, um, and you write on your website that you run your farm and the business um, that it developed or evolved out of a passion for diversified livestock and local food systems. So tell me a little bit more about the journey that has led you um, yeah, to this diversification, because you already said originally you were more a dairy farm but now you've
1: diversified so what what happened so what happened was dairy in the states is a very volatile market Um, we have you know there's usually a good year and then it can be followed by three to four years where prices are really suppressed and as dairy farmers are price takers they have no control over setting the price that they receive Um, sort of like wool on the commodity market as well you just kind of are at the mercy of whatever the market is doing And it's a very hard business to be in. Um, We've seen a lot of struggles with farms and farms continually going out of business. And so the trend tends to be to expand, to get bigger and bigger and spread those costs over more cows. Um, Where we're at, that's not really an option, nor is it really how we wanna operate our farm. And we are limited on space. Property values are very high here. And so the amount of land we have is limited, but what we can do with the land we have isn't. And so diversifying our operation just made sense because we could start stacking enterprises on the same property and get more production out of the same land base. And so that's where we started initially with the chickens and we went into pastured laying hens. They follow behind the cows. They also kind of help to reduce pests um, especially flies because they'll go through and scratch through the larva and the manure and it adds to our nitrogen cycle on the farm and then we started adding sheep and then eventually we actually ended up getting marginal ground um, nearby that was being unused to move most of our sheep to and so we kind of rotate our sheep between our home farms as we need them and then this additional hill ground in the winter and so the idea was really that we could spread out our production over more enterprises. And so if milk prices aren't good, we have our um, our fiber, or we have grass-fed lamb, or grass-fed beef, or our eggs that we're selling that creates a, a more sustainable system for us. And so we're not just dependent on the whim of one market, we have it spread over a variety of them. And that also plays into the fact that I just love all animals. (laughs) And I really enjoy raising multiple species and I like the challenge of it and the opportunity to learn something new. Um, My husband Thomas just loves poultry and so the chickens were a natural thing for him. My dad's always been really interested in beef cattle. We've always had a small herd, but this gave us the chance to really grow the beef side of our operation. And then it also gives us that sustainability to maintain the traditional dairy as well. Um, And we moved that 10 years ago. My dad and grandfather switched to organic. And so we're an organic dairy as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that we started doing more direct marketing. We've always both Thomas and I are really passionate about food systems and sustainable food systems and food security. And so he's worked with a lot of nonprofits that worked in rural communities um, facing food insecurities. And I've worked with uh, community gardens, as well as helping in uh, developing countries that have food insecurity or um, face challenges in their agricultural system. And so being able to produce food and get it into our local community, trying to make it as affordable as possible was really something that was important to us. And so we wanted to really try to focus our farm on that and so to that end as well our milk is all produced to a local family-owned creamery that makes cheese and a lot of that is actually just sold right here within our county as well so most of our products whether it's meat cheese or yarn stays locally to us
0: Mm -hmm. and that's yeah where a lot of storytelling can happen as well because you're connecting with the locals and they really they know you personally probably and they get really excited
1: and and it's really fun because we get to meet people that you know they might have eaten like a lamb chop that came from our farm and we but we didn't sell it to them they bought it from you know um, maybe a store that we work with or they got it at a dinner Especially pre COVID. Um, and so then it's fun because we meet these people that are like, oh, I had your lamb. It was so great. Or they'll be really excited to show us, you know, like we'll run into them and they'll be like, oh, you're the Foggy Bombs boys. This beanie is made out of your wool. I got it at Christmas. And it's really exciting to have those interactions. And we get to not only meet the people that are using what we produce, which is something that if you're producing on a commodity market, you don't get those interactions. But sometimes we also get to see what the wool from our sheep actually becomes, which is really awesome
0: yeah I can imagine yeah. and have you seen when you started changing your system have you seen improvements with your land and like has have has things changed on the on the farm itself
1: um, in some ways I have to say that my dad and my grandfather were always very progressive when it came to land management and how they viewed the farm through an eco sorry an ecological lens um, And so they were really progressive in using high intensity, short duration grazing, taking a very holistic management approach. Uh, But we have seen definite shifts where we've incorporated other species in and used their natural behaviors to impact the land. So where the chickens, we've been able to shift plant communities and parts of the farm that were not particularly advantageous to grazing but by putting the birds there over winter, we've changed, you know, communities that had a lot of thistle or uh, reeds into really diverse um, legume communities, or we've used sheep and goats um, after the clip to hit areas that had a lot of thistles and knock them back and put them back into perennial pasture. Uh, And so in those areas, we can see a big shift in the land and it's really cool now that we're you know five six years into this where we're seeing areas that were huge projects the first year we weren't sure it was worth it it took a lot of labor and then now you know six years later there are these beautiful pastures that have just carried on from that struggle of that first year of grazing sheep and goats on this big tall milk (laughs) thistle so (laughs) yeah
0: that's cool and but tell me how does it actually work so You put in the chickens and they pretty much eat everything all the things that also you don't want and then the land is open to receive more natural yeah so what
1: happens yeah so a lot of it has to do with like um there's plants that uh like thistles especially the thistles we have here don't respond well to high nitrogen contents in the soil Mm -hmm. and so with the chickens especially if they're concentrated there we can change Uh, the soil chemistry enough Uh, to make it advantageous for another species that's already in the seed bank to return. And Uh so, or they'll perhaps if we time our grazing right, um, we might hit the area right as an annual is going to seed and the chickens are going to go through and they'll eat all those seeds, which then prevents that annual from reseeding. So instead of it having that new batch or crop of seeds to come back following season. It gives the perennial seeds that are there or the rhizomes that are there that have been kind of being choked out an opportunity to bounce back and Uh, really establish and choke out the plant that we don't want to see. Uh, And so sometimes that disturbance will help us shift how a plant community uh, is operating in that area.
0: Okay, thanks for explaining that, because yeah. it, always, it always sounds nice, but then I'm like, but how does that actually work? <laughs> like,
1: well, and, and this is actually, um, so I was trained as an ecologist before I came back to the farm, so this is the area that, like, from an academic side point, I just get, like, super excited about.
0: <laughs> yeah, it must be complicated to, you know, you have to observe a lot and then make a decision, okay, now's the best time to go in there and do this and that. And,
1: and we're not always right, and that's that's a great thing, too, is that, sometimes it doesn't work the way we wanted it to or work at all and so then we get to learn from that and kind of change it the next year and that's the great thing about a farm that's been around for a hundred years is that it should be here a little bit longer so we have time to make those shifts
0: it's a long game I guess it's a very (laughs)
1: long game yeah
0: (laughs) and also on your website you write, and I think it's always like probably when you wrote this you took a lot of um, thought in condensing everything what you do but i want to now unwrap oh. that so i'm gonna okay. i'm gonna read it so we pride ourselves in bringing you food and fiber that has been ethically raised in a climate beneficial system providing nutrient dense protein like lux- luxurious fiber and preserving open landscapes for future generations so let's unpack those yeah that's a lot condensed
1: into one <laughs> yeah
0: so ethically raised how yeah like w- how would you define that why are you're so i w-
1: yeah so i would look at ethically raised as actually having kind of three prongs to it um there's the ethics of the animal welfare and the humane standards that we follow um so like on our dairy we're certified humane by a third-party certifier uh, with the sheep or the beef or the chickens it's using um Low stress practices when it comes to operating the farm or moving them we're letting them express their natural behaviors and in a lot of ways, when it comes to um, a lot of our land management. We're actually utilizing those natural behaviors to benefit the entire system and so you know and we're also making sure that they have a quality life from all the way from the beginning to the point that they're taken to the processor we. Um, with our meat animals, they're all harvested 20 minutes from the farm um, at a certified processor. Um, they're USDA certified, inhumane certified, and certified organic. And so, and it's a small family owned operation. So, everything is really local. They're not being transported a long way. They never really move very far. And then there's the environmental aspect of that. Um, you know, there's the ethics of the environment. Are we leaving the land in better shape than we found it. Um, We're trying to do as much as we can to sequester carbon and to manage our farm in a method that sequesters carbon that doesn't put uh, nitrates into the water table. Um, And so we have, you know, very routine water sampling to make sure that that's a goal we're reaching. We do soil sampling as well. Um, And so, you know, and then we wanna provide habitat for wildlife. So we're really big on operating our farm in a way that provides habitat for our wildlife and not just the charismatic megafauna that we all like to see, but you know, bugs, um, lizards, birds. We're really trying to make sure that we provide habitat for all of those as well and that we're encouraging native plants as much as possible. And then there's a social justice aspect to ethically raising livestock as well. Um, we know that livestock production can have a negative impact on communities, especially um, at-risk communities. And so we want to make sure that what we're doing isn't negatively impacting the communities around us. We want to provide, you know, clean air, clean water, um, preserve open spaces, provide, you know, wildlife for them to see, and then also bring high quality food to those local communities. Um, and we recognize that what we do has a certain price tag on it that not everyone can afford. And it's often out of reach for many people. And so we make sure that we also donate to local food pantries and food banks because we have a product that we wanna make sure is benefiting everyone locally to us.
0: Okay, that are already a lot of different aspects (laughs) in those two words of ethically raised. Okay, that sounds really good. And then climate beneficial system.
1: Yeah, so that's really comes down to carbon sequestration for us. We're um, working to sequester carbon through our grazing practices, increase the organic matter um, composition of our soil. As a dairy in California, there's actually a a mandate by the state to reduce methane emissions by 40% by 2030. Uh, And so the industry as a whole has to reach that goal, but for us, being the sort of dairy we are. Um, we did our analysis and there was really like nowhere for us to go that reduced methane emissions any more than where we were at because our cows are already on pasture. We already were using all the practices that they wanted us to implement. So that was great. That was a nice thing to get to already. Um, but yeah, so we're just trying to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions and do our part to sequester as much carbon and reduce the carbon footprint as much as possible.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And then nutrient-dense protein. That for me was actually new. I didn't know Oh, okay.
1: Um, So that's really, um, it's a big buzzword in the the cheese world right now. But uh, it comes down to with grazing uh, cattle or sheep on pasture, um, the meat is going to test higher in areas like omega-3s, CLA, um, it'll also be higher in certain minerals. And so, and as well as the cheeses are, um, there's also more beta carotene in grass fed proteins. And so not only do we want the product that we're selling when it comes to the meat side of our business or the cheese side of our business to be, you know, delicious and have this incredible flavor profile, but you should get the most out of it as you can and so not only should it be flavorful but it should be really healthy for you and so that's where our goal is there is that we're really trying to raise everything in a way that not only has a great taste but is as nutritious as possible
0: mm-hmm. yeah now I actually remember that I read that like in the 1940s our food had much more nutrients than it has today so that's yeah it's just related to that so...
1: it's just a change in how food's produced and raised mm-hmm. and so We're trying to use that methodology to really improve everyone's health.
0: Okay, cool. And last but not least, preserving preserving open landscapes.
1: Yeah, so this is one, um, we work with a local nonprofit, uh, the Buckeye Conservancy on this as well, but it really comes down to California has just a tremendous amount of urban sprawl. Um, And so we wanna build a sustainable system that keeps this farm and the land that we operate or manage that we might lease as open spaces that are working landscapes. Um, And so instead of it becoming a subdivision or being broken down into uh, the trendy term for them as ranchettes. So they're five to 10 acre properties and either they become large lawns which is basically an ecological Disaster because it's just a monocrop of one thing, Um, or they people move in and have ten acres or five acres and have horses, which are not the most uh, gentle creatures on land, Uh, and so it'll have an impact on how that land is managed, as well as it fragments the landscape. And so when you're looking at things like native plants or wildlife, it's really going to impact how wildlife is able to move over that landscape or where, you know, an insect that depends on a certain flower, instead of now having 200 acres where that flower was abundant, it may only have five acres here and then, you know, a quarter mile away, 10 acres where that flower is. And so by preserving those open landscapes, we're really providing an ecological service for the wildlife as well as community by having great viewscapes and Mm -hmm. being able to see, you know, open spaces because this area is beautiful.
0: Yeah. No, and I that that's also often like a concern that how you said urban areas they just tend to move outwards more and more and spread and yeah and yeah it does destroy um, those open landscapes and what how do you does the work work with the NGO? Uh,
1: no, with the sorry, <laughs> the the group we work with.
0: Yeah, it? the group. We have, yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Um, so like their whole mission is to preserve those open landscape so they help with um uh like succession planning so how is a farm going to transfer to the next generation they try to help you build um, management plans that not only benefit the landscape but keep you financially profitable so that way you have something to pass on to the next generation or someone's going to want to come in and actually take it over and keep it an operational farm
0: yeah that's cool that those kind of organizations exist as well (laughs) yeah (laughs) And you mentioned already um, before that y- you started with your Instagram account, I think, uh, in the yep. beginning, and that kind of morphed into something bigger. Um, so tell me a little bit about that, like a little more in detail, how that developed and to what it is today.
1: Okay, so it was sort of initially it was just for fun. We thought like it started out as my Instagram account, and then it merged into we thought we were going to use it to do sort of the advocating thing where you like we will tell the story of agriculture and as we were sharing our farm story on there more and more people started following us especially um, within the lgbtq community and especially um, kids that were lgbtq and in agriculture and didn't know if there was a space for them in ag or that they would be welcome in their communities. And so it kind of grew from there into this way of uh, sharing our life as an openly gay couple in agriculture that's very involved in the industry that is doing all these things. And then as we shared that story, it just kind of progressively moved further and further out. And So that's remained kind of the thread that runs through everything is just the story of Thomas and I and the farm and the family. Um, But it's also helping to tell the story of how we operate the farm. And then also to, you know, people want to support it. People are interested in it. And so it's morphed into also a brand, which is Foggy Bottoms Boys for fiber and uh, eggs and protein. And so it's sort of, grown out of this idea of like, oh, we're gonna share the story of our farm and post some (laughs) cute pictures of calves into this monstrosity, (laughs) but it's great.
0: Yeah, no, and I mean, you have an online shop where you also sell a few like t-shirts and um, yeah, you have wool yarn, some dryer balls and also your meat products. So Yeah. yeah, it's another, I guess in a way it's another branch of and source of income of diversifying.
1: It it, it really is. It's really expanded it outwards. We've had some really interesting opportunities where um, we've been contacted by like casting agents that are interested in shooting, um, (laughs) wanting us to do reality shows. And those have all been a little not so sure about that. It's, uh, It's definitely been an interesting aspect that's kind of brought more interest to the farm. And it's really allowed us to tell the story of agriculture and of farming families and to show just the diversity of farmers because we have a kind of a stereotypical idea of what the standard especially here in the states the standard of farmer is and that's not necessarily the
0: real story anymore yeah exactly and what i really i mean of course everybody connects with you differently depending on their own story but um for me what i really enjoy um are those posts where you explain why you're doing certain things so why are you moving today the sheep from here to there and why is that important or why are the chickens following the cows to eat what well, you explained earlier known that they eat the um, maggots or you know so you don't yeah, have so many flies out. yeah so that's what I find really helpful is it's not it, it's really detailed and really you know everything is connected and has a purpose so I really enjoy Those are my that favorite explaining. ones to write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and but I guess everybody takes away something else um, from, from that. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned a little bit earlier when that you interact with the people you meet, like they say they have the beanie, but also when I'm obviously my background is more communication. So I'm already always interested in also the kind of interactions you have with the audience. Um, like for example, on Instagram or on Facebook, like I see sometimes people are just writing, out great! Congratulations! Love it! Cute!" But do you also have like where people maybe ask more questions or?
1: Um, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, we get the we get the full gamut of interactions, um, and I love the ones where people ask questions or they really want to know more or understand. Um, an aspect of the system because that gives us, that gives us a genuine opportunity to interact and to share with them how the farm operates, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, And so those are my favorite interactions. Um, We also get the other side of that, which is where, you know, um, especially in dairy industry, there's a lot of pushback from the animal rights side. And so we have many of those interactions And those are difficult because very rare that you can shift. If someone is already firmly on that side, you're really not going to shift their viewpoint. Um, No matter how well you explain it or share, it's really uncommon that you're going to shift them to seeing it um, from a more academic standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a difficult interaction to have. We've had some that have been great. Um, We had some interactions where we've received emails and people want to know about why calves are raised in hutches and we've explained it to them. And they went away with an actual understanding of social distancing in calves and why that's yeah. important, especially now it <laughs> makes it very clear why we do this. Um, but those interactions are always difficult for us. Um, and then because we're a gay couple in ag, we also just get some really crazy ones. Um, but. Yeah. Uh, um, some that are negative, some that are people that need to learn where boundaries are drawn. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just, we get kind of the full range of interactions. So it's been, yeah. I enjoy it.
0: <laughs> so not only do you run a farm, you also have to run a PR agency.
1: And yeah, <laughs> yeah luckily my Thomas uh, studied marketing. So he's very good at that side of the business.
0: Yeah, excellent. well i think we have come to the point in this show where we are finally going to talk about sheep are you ready (laughs) i'm ready okay so tell me a little bit about your flock because i heard on one of your facebook lives or something that you actually started a few years ago and you started with two marina sheep that were somehow for free so how they were how did your flock Um, develop
1: so it started about seven years ago. Um, I was ready to get back into sheep. I'd had them as a child growing up, and Thomas had obviously grown up with suffix. We had a bunch of angora rabbit fiber because we had angora rabbits, and so we wanted to start blending wool. I knew I wanted fine wool to start doing our own yarn. And Thomas was working for uh, a youth program at the time, uh, the 4-H program. and. Someone called and they had these two Merino lambs. They had bought them because they were got a spinning wheel and they were going to spin their own fleeces. And they had been told that they could keep two sheep on a quarter acre, um, which was not enough land, especially when there was a house and a garage on the quarter acre. So they very quickly ate everything. And they called the 4-H program and wanted to know if there were any youth that wanted the sheep. And there weren't because... Um, the wool sheep are not very popular, especially in this area and definitely not with young children. And so we ended up taking them. And so from there, then we got a few Rommeldales uh, from a shepherdess that was just down the road. And then the flock that those had come from, that she'd bought those out of, uh, was dispersing the next year. And then we bought 40 more and (laughs) it just sort of very quickly grew from there. (laughs) Um, So these... These two Merinos very quickly turned into 50 head of sheep within a year. Um, And now I think we're just over 100 is what we're managing. And it's predominantly Rommeldales. Um, That's our breed. And then we have some horned Dorsets that we just started adding this year to kind of offer a few different yarn options.
0: Yeah, and, and I understand that the Rommeldale is quite special um, and I don't know yeah. anything about the breed.
1: So tell okay. me a little bit they're more. Very, <laughs> oh, I, I love to. I love, I've become a big uh, supporter of the Rommeldale breed. So they're an American fine wool breed. They were developed in the early 1900s by uh, crossing New Zealand Romneys with kind of our Western range uh, Rommelay ewes. And they created, the idea was to create a dual purpose fine wool. And so they're in, usually they kind of fall in that 20 to 25 micron range. So they're kind of the high, they're the high end of the fine wool. Um, our flock holds towards the 20. So we try to really keep towards a 20 micron police in ours. Um, and so they were a white sheep originally because they were commercial. And when the wool industry went into decline in the U.S. and the sheep industry followed along in the 50s, maybe into the 60s, they really started to Vanished. they were not popular enough to hold out where Rombol- or Rombolais or Marinos could. And there was a gentleman in California that had some colored lambs pop up. And so he called them the California Variegated Mutant. And the CVM became its own separate breed and got very popular with hand spinners. Um, they have this beautiful silver blue fleece. They look like a badger. So they have these really cool facial markings and eventually they merged them back together as a breed within the registries and they became the Rommeldale slash CVM is just what they call them now Um, and the Rommeldale is kind of in this wide range of colors because it's really continued to exist within hand spinner flocks and um, you know small groups of 10 20 max for the most part and you have Moritz which are like a deep chocolate colored sheep, Um, the CVMs, there's blacks, there's uh, kind of piebalds, which are spotted sheep. So you have this wide range of fleece colors and you can breed two white sheep together and you have no idea what you're going to get because they've (laughs) all been mixed up now. So genetically, it's just a, a lottery. Um, And so there's, they're classified by the American livestock conservancy as threatened. There's fewer than 5,000 of them globally. Um, So they're not a real common breed and the one thing that we found is that there's really a diversity in the fleece type because they've existed within spinner flocks for the most part it really kind of came down to what that individual person liked so you have sheep like ours that are really towards the Ramboulet style they have more of a Ramboulet type fleece the real tight crimp um, they're usually in that 20 micron range whereas then you have others that are going to be more towards the Romney. They're going to have a longer staple length. There's going to be a larger boulder crimp throughout it, and they're probably going to have a 25 micron fleece. Um, and so there's just kind of this wide range, which makes it really interesting when you go to look for new genetics, trying to find something that will fit within your flock, because you can go to a flock and there's nothing that meets what you're looking for. Okay. But they are just a very cool sheep. They're hardy. They do well in wet climates, even with a fine fleece.
0: Yeah, that's what I understood, that because the fleece is so dense, then the rain doesn't go in. And
1: Yeah, helps. and I, I, you know, when that's been kind of the traditional knowledge in this area is that fine wools don't exist. Um, you can't raise a fine wool sheep here, and no one has them. And so there's lots of old timers that no longer have sheep, but, you know, they're beef cattle farmers now, but they were for years sheep farmers, and then they had to make that transition as the industry went away. And so we'll be talking to them at the sale barn and talking about, you know, oh yeah, we have, you know, Rommel they're fine wool. And they're like, you can't raise fine wools. He was like, no, <laughs> you can. You just have to breed the right kind of fine wool and manage them correctly. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting.
0: That's also the discussion I had with Leslie Pryor, who's um, yeah. breeding the Merino sheep in the south of England. Oh.
1: Yeah, I loved that episode. So I was like, see, she can do it there. There's no reason yeah. we can't do it here.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's why so her whole argument. You just have to breed the kind of sheep that is suitable for your exactly. region or location. Yep and because it seems you really like to experiment and you like a good challenge you also said that you were trying to find the right time to lamb and also the right time to shear so take me a little bit through that journey and okay
1: so seven years ago when we got back into sheep um, we just did sort of what was traditional in this area you lambed in February, March, April was when everyone lambed their ewes. You usually would go through and tag them. Um, I think it's called crutching in Australia where you just trim up the back
0: uh,
1: Mm -hmm. in December or January. That way it was cleaner for them when they lambed. And then you would shear in June. Uh, And so we did that the first few years and we found, and one of those years included an incredibly terrible winter. Um, We had more rainfall than, it was actually the, wettest winter on record, which in an area like ours is really wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a 50% fleece loss that year on our sheep. Um, there was just too many breaks in the fleeces. Um, you know, you're lambing and the ewes are in full fleece. You're also getting rained on all year. Even if they have really dense fleece, that's just not gonna hold up to that much rain. And then we sheared, we had a group of ewes that we sheared in the fall for some reason. And the next fall they came around and we shared them and their fleeces were perfect. And they were beautiful. It was like, it took us two years because apparently we were slow learners to realize (laughs) like we should just do this with everybody. Um, And then we also had tried lambing at different times. We lambed in February, we've lambed in June, we've lambed in August, September. And we found like as we kind of moved our lambing around that a November end of November, beginning in December really works the best for us. Our weather is generally the worst in January and February, um, but we're moving them up onto the hills at that point. There is a lot of tree cover so they can get out of the weather they want. Um, They have plenty of feed to graze up there and they're supplemented. And then we can wean our lambs back onto the bottoms um, at the dairy. We do some grazing with them because they're smaller. They're not gonna impact the land as much as a you would when we move them around and they have access to a barn if we want. And when the spring flush comes on in um, April, May, June, and into July is when we wanna put the most growth on them anyways. And they're really gonna be hitting that point where they're gonna be growing quickly and moving into their finish as a grass-fed lamb. And so it worked that you know end of November, beginning of December lambing really gives us the opportunity to utilize the feed that we have available to get our lambs to a finished point for harvest in the shortest amount of time, utilizing the forage that we have available to us. And then we also have better fleece quality because we're going through winter. Um, We just sheared in the beginning of November. So we're actually lambing on ewes that are freshly shorn. So we don't need to tag them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Any, if they have a stressful lambing, there's not gonna be a wool break because it's a short fleece. So it'll just be at the tip anyways and they're gonna be short fleece going through winter. Um, and we thought this would be a disadvantage for them and that's been one of the things we've run into with other farmers is, you know, your ewes are gonna be cold going through winter. Um, we found that they are much happier going through winter with a short fleece, um, especially under an inch, you know, that half inch, quarter inch fleece than being in full fleece because they don't turn into giant sponges. And so instead of packing around all that water weight and holding all that water to them, they're now just short fleeced and they're much more willing to be out grazing in the middle of a rainstorm. So that's okay. been a fun adventure for us.
0: Yeah. And that again shows just like with the finding the right breed, you no, know, also finding just the right technique that suits your weather, suits your the farm that you have to work with. So
1: absolutely. It's all about, you know, I think when it comes, there's no right breed or one right management practice. It's the right one for your environment your climate and for the sheep you're working with so that's just been the struggle for us was finding really that perfect spot where we were managing this breed of sheep correctly in this area because that's not what's traditionally here and that wasn't what was traditional in this area was not working
0: <laughs> yeah okay well and also then at some point you just have to say okay i'm gonna try something new it's yeah <laughs> go out with the traditions we have to make this work
1: exactly and we're gonna find something that works for us and we're happy with it and even if the neighbor doesn't quite understand it's fine
0: yeah exactly and then i also read in one of your posts sorry i feel like i'm stalking you but um, in one of your posts i read that you wrote like okay so we're gonna i think you were explaining that to your son that we're gonna let this land rest for 300 days but the other part we're gonna graze again in 30 days. So explain that to me as well. How does that work? Why is oh, that important? So it's
1: all it's so it's very important in how we're going to impact the land and what we're trying to achieve from a management standpoint on that particular piece of land. And so um, the part that we're going to that's going to have a 300 day rest period is um, it's the back 50 acres parcel um, on the hill farm where we. Winter our sheep and we did a spring grazing up there and it was an area that's never really been grazed so we wanted to impact it really heavily. Um, There was some bramble and that that we wanted the sheep to knock back and they were just going to let it go that way. All of the forbs and the grasses had time to come back and really establish themselves and so in another spot like here in the bottoms um, where our dairy is we can graze after a 30 day rest period, the grass is knee high again without uh, any irrigation and we'll need to come through if we're gonna graze it off. Otherwise it's gonna go to seed and the plants will start going dormant. And so it really is just a function of what's the soil type that we're on. um, And then also what's the management goal that we're trying to achieve in that specific location. And so we really tailor all of our grazing strategies around those two things. What is that specific ground capability what is possible there and then where are we trying to get it and so how can we impact it through using livestock impact
0: and do you then keep like a plan where you write okay check this area again in that many days and make a decision or how do you
1: so we have a calendar that we keep on so i know um we have friends that keep these like amazing color coordinated charts and they graph it all out Uh, And that's just never worked for us for some reason we I just don't think we're the type of people that will go back and we're not going to keep track of the crayon that we used and we'll lose it and so we have a calendar that we keep track of where were the animals at what day and then you know if we know okay this is the time next year we want them to be here we'll make a note of it on next year's calendar that way we know okay you need to go check that field at that point, and determine if it's ready, or if you need to move it back and then we also do a lot of. um, We set up sample points where we take photos, and so that way we Ah, know. You know, last year this was looked like this, and this year it looks like this. So we're going in the right direction, or we're not going in the right direction, and
0: then let's change what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. I just moved into a house with a huge garden that hasn't been managed well by my parents for some time. (laughs) So I'm. I need to. Yeah. I guess it was just their age. At some point, they just couldn't manage anymore, but. I'm motivated, but now I have to, I have that's why I'm listening carefully. I have to sneak some of those practices into my <laughs> gardening.
1: And they work everywhere. as the thing, you know, it's really just kind of planning and setting up what you're trying to achieve and then setting mile markers so you can see if you're getting there or if you need to switch it up. And there's the thing we've learned is there's no shame in failing because it's going to happen. Inevitably, there's only shame in not trying it.
0: So. Mm, yeah and not I guess learning from
1: yeah yeah work. that would be important
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay and then another challenge I think you faced a little bit is so you produced that wonderful wool and you wanted to also sell your own yarn but then I guess it wasn't that easy to actually make yarn out of your beautiful wool so what was that journey like
1: oh man no wait there. that was not an easy journey um so we very uh, we oversimplified what it was going to be like to make yarn, and we went into it with these great ideas in our mind of like, oh, it's going to be easy. We'll take this wool and our Angora rabbit fiber. We're going to drop it off to the mill, and you know they'll call us in like a month max, and it'll be done. And we'll pick it up and we'll sell it. That is not how it works, especially uh, with small mills here. <laughs> It's, there's not enough of them, so they're very backlogged. Um, we learned very quickly that not every mill can handle every type of fiber, um, and that we also learned that you need to actually ask if they've worked with that type of fiber before you drop it off. Um, we were assured the first mill we tried. We were assured like they could handle an Angora rabbit, a uh, Blueface Lester blend. That was no problem. We dropped it off. And a month later, we got a call. I was like, you need to come pick it up. We don't know what, like, it, something went wrong. And we got back, it was like 15 pounds of Angora rabbit fiber, which is very expensive fiber. And it was in dreadlocks. Um, they mm. had washed it like they would wash a sheep, like a wolf lease. And it immediately felted and was useless. Um,
0: oh, no. <laughs> and
1: so we eventually found a mill that could work with Angora rabbit. was... Very, they were very skilled with it. Unfortunately, they were in Minnesota, so we had to ship it halfway across the country for it to be milled. And then we found there were two mills that were close to us that would work with wool. Um, The first mill we contacted, we were kind of on the path. We told them what breed of sheep we had. And they're like, oh, that might not work. Um, Rommeldale fleeces are kind of iffy. We might not be able to come through. It turned out they were built to do uh, medium and long wools which are what a lot of uh, American fleeces are and so when they couldn't handle a fine wool fleece the mill wasn't built to cart it and so uh, there was another mill that was actually closer but had just started and they set up to do fine wools and so we were able to use them but they were new so there was a lot of learning for everybody going through that process <laughs> um, and now that's great. They do all of our hundred percent wool blends, um, and we just take all those fleeces to them. And the other challenge has been since we do natural colored fleeces, we only do a few. Um, we don't do any dyeing that we sell, um, but we do do white yarns that can be dyed. But we do all these yarns, and they're really individual. So we might make a we'll make a run of one type of yarn, and we'll probably never make that again, just because the conditions for those fleeces won't be there again and we may not have enough black fleeces and more fleeces to make that particular blend so it gives us a lot of freedom though to really experiment and do fun blends where they do tonals and variegations but it was finding a mill that was willing to take the time to feed you know when you're dealing with 100 fleeces to feed this fleece through and then a white fleece and then a black fleece and then a silver fleece and then go to a brown fleece and then To apply them in a certain way and so those have all been challenges that we've had to meet and then finally once we get the product it was the challenge of finding customers to sell it to Um, we went in assuming it would be super easy and then we heard just horror stories about how difficult it was and it was like we talked to people and I was like oh god we're gonna be sitting on hundreds of pounds of yarn for years (laughs) Um, which has not been the case we actually sell a lot of yarn and Generally we only, whatever the previous season's yarn is, it sells out by the next round, which is great. Um, But it's finding the right way to get to those customers and to sell them that product. And then trying to keep that price low enough that it's accessible. Um, The first round of yarn we did, we colored it. Um, We did all these dyes and we found this local fiber artist and she hand dyed it. And it was just like, I mean, they were so cool. They're vibrant. And it was an $80 skein of yarn for 150 oh. yards, which is not like it's just not accessible for everybody. Um, and so it was just this very exclusive product. And that really didn't fit into our ethos as a farm or make it easy to move that yarn. And so now most of our skeins fall into the $20 to $40 range. Um, and $40 is going to be something that's got an Angora rabbit blend just because of the inherent cost of that fiber. Um, but we try to keep them lower so it's affordable, but yet profitable for us to actually do it. And and then we don't sit on so much yarn, that's taking over our house.
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and, but what was then the right solution to find your target customer? Was it th- um, through online or more local shops or?
1: Uh, online, um, we worked with, initially we worked with a local yarn shop and we do, um, Now we are not in, we're not in any yarn shops. We don't work with any yarn shops. We do work with um, local interest uh, tourism shops that sell local products. And so um, they'll carry like a few baskets of our yarn and our dryer balls. Uh, And those are things that people can, you know, they'll see it, it's local, they want something from this region, they'll purchase it. But for the most part, it's really about Instagram and Facebook. And that's been how we've reached customers, um, reaching out to influencers within the knitting community, um, sending samples to people, and then also really just pushing products. Um, And we find that certain photographing products certain ways draws more interest to them. And so we've had a lot of experimentation with how we photograph yarn, if there's a person in it, if there's not, and then what does that actually result in sales-wise? Yeah. so Instagram is great for sale, for selling yarn.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. And I, yeah I saw that you did like a live like a half an hour live evening where you were like showing you different um, yarns and explaining oh, yeah. how they were made and so on.
1: Yeah, and people, and that's a great way because then everyone can interact with you. So it actually gives like an actual interaction. It's not just the photo of it. We mm-hmm. can, you know, they can ask questions while we're on there. We can answer it because if one person has the question, someone else has the question, yeah. and so we can answer those questions. We can talk about the yarns, and then we can share kind of the farm story while we're at it. And you get that byplay between Thomas and I, and the interaction. And uh, I believe we were drinking cocktails while we were doing it, so it probably <laughs> got a little more exciting. My my mother was not happy with that (laughs) that one, but (laughs) it seemed like everyone else loved it yeah it
0: was fun but then you know you have that unique experience of knowing how your you know your fleece ends up does that then feed back into how you breed and select absolutely yeah
1: yes so our our management has really changed with the end product seeing what it comes back as and then how are we going to breed these Use What are we going to select for? And so, and then what do customers want to buy? Um, we have one yarn, it's called Frosty. It's a all white. Uh, it's a lambs. It started out as a lambs wool. Now it's just like a fine white wool. Um, and it's always, you know, the sheep that are in that 20 micron or even the, especially with the lambs will get under the 20 micron range. And that yarn, we never have it in stock. It comes, we'll get that year's batch back and it sells out within a week or two and it's gone. Um, And that's one of the only yarns that we actually repeat every year. Um, But we've seen that the finer fleeces is what people are interested in. And so that's why we've shifted towards a fleece that's more of a micro crimp and in that 20 micron range Um, and not gonna deviate too far from that because that's what we can sell. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one that there's always requests for is sock yarn. Um, Mm -hmm. And while uh, Rommeldale is fairly abrasion resistant, it's just not the best sock yarn. And so that's why we've added um, 20 horn dorsets to our flock this year, is those dorset fleeces work great for sock yarns. And it's white, so they can dye it whatever they want and make whatever colored socks they want. And so we've added this other breed on a small scale, just so we can diversify our yarn line.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really cool that you can just tweak it here and there, and then you already have new products and
1: yeah, a new great. target then, audience, a new target audience, and and that's been a challenge with knitting yarns, is it requires a skill set to use it. Um, you know, only only knitters or crocheters are gonna be able to use it. And so we inherently miss out on a huge marketing opportunity because there's a lot of people who don't knit or crochet. And so that's where we started with the dryer balls. It was a great way to use our lower quality fleeces that don't make the cut for yarn, but they can be put into dryer ball and and it's eco-friendly. And so people will buy those. They're great for giving as gifts or stocking stuffers. And then this year, Actually, I was hoping I could show you, but the sample is should be back here on Monday for our blankets. So we had uh, a bunch of our fleeces last year milled into yarn and woven into throws. And so oh, nice. we'll have those back. Hopefully at the end of next week, we'll have all of them back and be able to start selling those, which is then something that anyone can purchase and utilize. You don't have to be a knitter.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's also a perfect gift. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. So but we have to plan like a year in advance if we want to have them in time for the holiday
0: season <laughs> in the next year. Yeah, that is yeah, a long yeah, long, long time for a product. So one of my questions last questions um is and you mentioned that already a little bit when you were talking about um other farmers saying no, but you can't have these type of sheep in this climate and so on. And that also is like a larger um, discussion that, I mean, there've been also a lot of movies now, like from the Savory Foundation, the Kiss the Ground movie. And yep. I recently watched this movie about Apricot Lane, um, where oh, they were oh. also, Apricot Lane Farm, I think it was called. I don't know if you-
1: I haven't seen it. Yeah, no. and it's
0: also where they start on, 18 acres uh, really diversified farming like it used to oh, cool. be a, a dead farm where they were just doing one types of crops and this couple took it over and started growing and like all different kinds of vegetables and fruits and also all kinds of animals just like oh cool you have of. to look it up yeah I don't know the, the, the farm was called apricot lane farm but in German the movie was called or little big farm but oh okay yes yes
1: i have i've seen previews for it i haven't watched it yet Yeah, yeah yeah so
0: but that's like a general thing that there are a lot of farmers now doing more holistic farming regenerative farm whatever you want to call the system but then there's also a lot of pushback from more commercial farmers maybe who say yeah that's great you can do it on your specific farm but it's not Applicable to everyone, and not everyone can do this. So, how would you argue with that? Like, what is your well, take on that?
1: I, I think it's it's a yes and no situation. Um, like, there are definitely aspects of what we do that everyone can use, and I think everyone should be using. Um, there are parts of it that no probably aren't going to apply. I don't think everyone's going to start mill or can start milling their own yarn and selling it. Um, we don't have the milling capacity for that. <laughs> we don't have the knitters available, and you know it requires a certain interest on the farmer's part to actually do the marketing. That a lot of farmers just don't have. I mean, my dad has zero interest in dealing with social media or selling any product that we produce. He loves seeing them go out. He loves like running into someone that has had a steak, you know, from a steer that he raised. That's really cool to him, but he's not interested in those daily interactions or that work that goes into that. Um, but when it comes to the management side of it, I think those can be scaled up in a lot of ways, uh, especially when it comes to the ideas of like, how are we impacting the local ecology? Um, what impacts do we have on our local communities? How can we benefit our local communities? And just as a, as a Californian and kind of the trends that we're seeing here, Those are things that all farmers need to be cognizant of. Um, We, you know, many farms might not like to think about it, but we have a social license to operate, Um, you know, and if we violate that or we're doing something that is negatively impacting our community around us, well, then that's how legislation and then regulation develops that will force you to operate in a way that the consumer finds um, appealing or correct. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's being cognizant of what we're doing and then telling the story of what we're doing. Uh, There are and a lot of times I will be talking to farmers about some of our practices and they actually have similar practices that they use. They just don't think of them in that frame of mind. They're not thinking about it as something that benefits the local ecology. It just made more fodder for cows to graze. It's like, well, this is true, but you're also improving carbon sequestration, you're adding more organic matter. Yes, the end result that you see is more fodder, but you're actually doing an environmental practice that you can get credit for. You just need to actually be aware of what's happening on each of those levels. And so I would say that there's definitely ways that we can shift how farmers view these practices. And then also that that everyone just is gonna have to adopt some of them at some point. you know, the methane is a perfect example within the California dairy industry. Um, Farms continued to use practices that had a higher methane output, and now there's regulation that you have to conform with. And so now they've had to adjust to that and change, whereas maybe if they had been using practices before, we might not have ended up in a situation where the legislature came in and said, here's a new law that you're going to comply with by, 2030 or be fined Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think those are all kind of play into that the other part is that there's just a benefit to diversity Um, we know that a diverse system in a natural setting is more resilient COVID made it very clear that a diverse food system is more resilient opposed to one that's consolidated and so I think that each farm kind of finding their own way and maybe being a little different just makes an overall more resilient system for all of us and we'll kind of, it'll help not only keep the sheep industry and the ag industry moving forward and keep it here, but it also provides food and fiber for the community around us and the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that kind of closes the loop of what you said earlier of um, ethically raised and because that had a lot of aspects, including the community around you and food security.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, As farmers, we're here to provide food and fiber for people. We're feeding them and clothing them. So we want to do that. That's, at the end of the day, what we're doing. So let's always keep that in mind, that that's our end end game. So we just have to get there.
0: (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much, Cody. And because when I was preparing, I came up with so many questions, but we're already talking over an hour now. But you did agree that we could ask a few more questions in a new segment that we're going to call the lightning round. Where I'll just, um, I wish I had like a late night show where now, you know, something would come across the screen now. The lightning round. (laughs) (laughs) Or like some music. Some
1: Um, some theme music.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I will just ask questions and you'll just answer them very quickly and then. That would be the end to our show tonight. All right. Awesome. Okay. So Tammy, what is a quarantine?
1: Oh, uh, so a quarantine is just a cocktail. And out of COVID, there have been many really cool cocktails that have come up with names of plagues. And so we started making them and incorporated them into our cooking show and weekly updates.
0: <laughs> and is it a specific recipe or just um, Oh, there's all any, like, any
1: there there's a whole range of them. So there was one okay. called the Taker that I really liked, which was basically a Moscow mule with bourbon instead of <laughs> vodka.
0: Okay, cool. I'll check those out then. And did you really dye your wool with Kool-Aid?
1: I did. Um, it's a really simple and fun way to dye wool. Uh, the... Uh, citric acid serves as the mordant in it. So you don't need to buy alum and it's non-toxic. And so if you're looking for like a fun activity to do with kids, that's educational and might get them engaged in fiber. Kool-Aid dyeing is the thing to do. So we did a live on Facebook and Instagram showing parents how to use it.
0: Okay, cool. Then you sometimes talk of the island. What is the island?
1: Oh, so We live in a river valley, and there's a river that runs through it. And in the mouth of the river, where it meets the ocean, there is an island called Cockrobin. And that's where my grandmother's family settled when they immigrated from Denmark. And we still farm out there. Mostly we grow off alpha, and it's currently where our ewes should be lambing soon.
0: (laughs) Cool. Then you asked your audience to come up with a new name for one of your new yarns. So what were the three top names that came out of that?
1: I honestly don't remember. There were so many good ones, but we ended up, I just labeled it, and this is my terrible attempt at German. I think it's own to tell, which means like no title. Ah, um, yeah, and so, oh, oh, the yeah, title. yeah, there we go, yeah. So we, uh, that is just what it stayed because there was a fashion house named that. And I was like, we'll just call it that. So.
0: Okay, so you have some German now in your, in your collection are, as well. <laughs> And why did you start a cooking show?
1: Oh, so the cooking show was really, everyone wanted to know how to use the cuts of meat that we were selling, especially things like chuck roasts and short ribs that people maybe aren't accustomed to using. And so it started as a way to kind of show how to use various cuts that we sold. But then it morphed into a lot of my own interests and kind of cuisines that I like to cook. So,
0: And what's your most popular recipe?
1: Always the challah. Um, we are always getting requests for challah recipes like and various things to stuff a challah with which is uh the challah is a bread recipe
0: Ah, uh, okay and you say you so you used to have goats but you said you will never have goats again what happened
1: oh man the goats um they anywhere water can flow a goat can go and they got out constantly and were causing trouble and half of the island is owned and managed by the national Fish and wildlife service as a refuge and so for like a week they vanished onto the refuge and we couldn't find them and so we were all in a bit of a panic because they were going to be eating things like the trees that were planted there and so now we just said no more goats we can't deal with the stress
0: (laughs) okay then you also sometimes go to sheep fairs and exhibit your sheep did you ever win a prize
1: We have. We've been very successful. The best one we've won um, was the Black Sheep Gathering in Oregon, which is one of the largest uh, wool-only sheep shows in the United States. They cut the entries off at 400 head, and we won Supreme Champion in 2018 with one of our ewes named Risk Umbridge, and the best part of it for us was that the award is the Glenn Edmonds Cup, which is in honor of the guy that actually created the California Variegated Mutant, so that part of the Rumbledale And a Rommeldale had never won that award before. So we won the award in honor of the guy that made our breed as the first one of our breed ever to do it, which was pretty cool.
0: That is cool. Now, how many, um, this is the lightning round, I can't answer um, ask more questions about that, but how many dogs live on your farm?
1: Oh, there's four. So we have two livestock guardian dogs, Bayorn and Thorin, and then we have two sheep dogs, Astro and Dragon.
0: And one of them wears sunglasses sometimes. Why?
1: Yes, Dragon does. He has blue eyes, and so on bright days, uh, he ends up squinting a lot and is very uncomfortable. So we he has rec specs, which are these glasses that go on, so he can see when he's working the sheep.
0: And it works. It seems. It does.
1: He actually really likes them.
0: Okay, how many sheep did you have as a child?
1: Um, so Thomas and I both had about 25 head of sheep as kids at any given time. Um, so we both kind of grew up. He had Suffolk's and then I had Dorset's and natural colored Columbias.
0: Okay, last questions. Where can our listeners find out more about you and uh, what you do?
1: Well, you can check us out on our website, which is foggybottomsboys.com. Uh, bottoms and boys is both plural. And you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. We don't do Twitter. So,
0: Excellent. And well, that's... thank you so much. That's the end of our lightning round. That was awesome. fun. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks for letting me ask so many uh, detailed questions. I no, hope I, I wasn't too it. curious. <laughs>
1: No, it's great. I love love answering questions about the farm.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Cody. And I wish you lots of continued success with all the diversity that you're doing on your farm.
1: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. Shalom, shalom. (laughs) Well, I really hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Cody Nicholson-Stratton from the Foggy Bottoms Boys just as much as I did. If you want to find out more, then head on over to the show notes at elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 122. And there I have linked to all the different um, social media outlets and also the website of Foggy Bottoms Boys. So you can um, explore all the beautiful stories that Cody and his husband Thomas uh, tell on social media. It's really worth checking out. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you again in two weeks time and bye for now.